Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is Sakib Ali hosting the show. And uh, today we have a guest who has a pretty prolific career in it, the highest level of county cricket, playing for Middlesex. And he also made uh, his debut for England. Uh, he's originally from Barbados. Uh, let me welcome uh, Roland Butcher to the show. How are you? Sakib, um, thank you very much. I am very well, and it's a great pleasure to be on the show. No, no, pleasure is all mine, believe me. Uh, so. So let's just start this very standard format here. Uh, I know a little bit about your career, uh, but uh, if you can expand uh, your move to England from Barbados. And when did you become a cricket fan to start with? And then uh, your early years from Barbados to England. Share with the listeners here. I think I, I became very interested in cricket, I think, at a, a very, very young age. Um, not really sure the reason why I was particularly drawn to the sport, but what I believe is that in those days back in the 60s, certainly the situation was the area that I lived in. I lived in the countryside, the eastern part of Barbados, East Point, which is in St. Philip, which is the most eastern parish and the, the biggest parish in Barbados. But in those days, it seemed a long way away from the capital, Bridgetown which is about some 15 miles away. Naturally, transportation was not the greatest, but in those days, really, you, did, you had limited options because you lived in those rural areas. The only sports really available to you were either cricket or, or track and field. So I presume that, you know, I got interested in cricket um, simply because I was not a great runner. But I, I think also... You know, obviously, cricket had a great uh, culture, not just in Barbados, but throughout the Caribbean. So it was something that was very topical. And we were very fortunate that at that time, we, we had some of the greatest players um, in Barbados or coming from Barbados who were on the international stage. So I think that probably helped um, to draw me towards the game of cricket. But I would imagine it would have been probably around the age of five or six. So then, of course, you moved to England at a very young age. Uh, and coming into England, I mean, you had cricket and, you know, I read you didn't give up cricket. Of course, we know what happened after that. But who were your heroes when you moved to England from, from the West Indies? Uh, who were you idolizing in, uh, you know, at that point? And, and secondly, uh, what was the immediate uh, roadmap uh, to continue cricket in England? Yeah, I think probably my, uh, my heroes never really changed from... I think when I left Barbados, because as a youngster growing up in Barbados, uh, the players that really caught my imagination were obviously the likes of, at the time it was Garfield Sobers, Seymour Nurse, Rez Hall, Charlie Griffith, um, Rohan Kanai, and Basil Butcher, cousin of mine from Guyana, who were West Indies players. Conrad Hunt, those were players very much the peak of their powers and in those days really the only cricket you would actually see perhaps on the television for those who had televisions or the mobile cinema were West Indies cricket so you saw these great players um, doing their skills so they became heroes to you but for me it would, apart from that it was slightly different in that my hero as a, as a boy growing up was Colin Bland from South Africa. 
it seemed a very strange um, situation as to why, why he should be my role model. But I guess in those days, because of, of where we lived and what was available to us, we did perhaps more reading um, than viewing of anything. So I actually read, you know, if someone in the, in the local area got uh, a cricket magazine of any sort, it, it would be passed around the, the community. So as soon as someone's read it, it'd be passed on to someone else. And so I did a lot of reading and I was very impressed with the exploits of Colin Bland, in the, particularly as a fielder. Um, you know, you read about his wonderful pickups and throwing stumps down and his athleticism and also he was a very good batsman. So he really was somebody that really modeled my, my game, even though I had never seen him. I, when I practice, I imagine myself to be uh, Colin Bland to the point where, you know, my friends, you know, they even gave me the nickname of, of Bland. So, you know, he was a great hero. And then I think also, uh, before I left to go to England, you had the likes of Seymour Nurse and Charlie Griffith, who were national um, sports council coaches with a mandate of coaching in the, in the primary schools. So basically, they would get to our school maybe once a month to do a session. So I think those help really whet my appetite for the game. And I think my appetite was even whetted further by my cousin, uh, my cousin Monica Butcher, who obviously we were in the same household. Uh, you know, she liked cricket and she took me to my very first live um, cricket game. I think it probably was around 65 or so, 1965. It was West Indies, Australia here in, in Barbados. She took me to that test match. Uh, I was able to see the great players. And what I do remember from that first test match is that Bill Laurie and Bobby Simpson put on over 300 for the first wicket. So that was a memorable first um, test match. And it just obviously further whetted my appetite to a sport that I had fallen in love with. Obviously, going to England, I went to England at age 13 and a half. A completely different scenario in that in the West Indies, we play cricket all the time. England, slightly different. Their major sport, obviously, is football. So football is played with the same enthusiasm amongst the youngsters in England as we play cricket here. So that was a strange situation for me because coming from Barbados and the rural parish of St. Philip, I had limited exposure, if any, um, to the game of football. So this was a new experience. But I adapted very quickly and quite enjoyed it, actually. And I was away from cricket for a little while because um, obviously I arrived in England. It was in May. It was very, very cold. It appeared very cold to me in May. And really May should have been coming into the summer season, but mm. it didn't appear that way to me. Uh, so, you know, I, I was involved with football and didn't get involved with cricket for quite a while. As you know, it's, long, that changed. No, it's it's very interesting, and uh, you know when obviously I'm originally from India now I live in states, but uh, 
depending on how you view a certain sport in certain times, uh, can also influence your mindset. I mean, I'm speaking for myself as a young boy when I was watching cricket and reading about cricket in India. It was exploding in India. It was becoming you know, exponentially popular. But we also thought like it's popular in India. It's similarly popular in England and Australia. But it's a little farther from the truth. Like you said, when you went to England, you realize football or soccer is the number one sport. And in Australia, Aussie rules football and other sports are as equal or maybe slightly bigger than uh, cricket itself. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a cultural shift when you come there. So I'm sure Lords was always the home of the game. So, uh, so is, was cricket popular in certain pockets, certain region compared to soccer or it was just not as popular even school level? So, Well, it was um, basically certainly at, at kids' level. Um, soccer was always very, very popular. I mean, wherever you went, Every little bit of grass, every you know, you, you just saw people playing football. So, you know, that would be similar to what I saw as a, as a little boy here for cricket. But obviously, sim- simply because they're much much bigger country with bigger numbers, um, it was more prevalent. And obviously, you know, you would only see cricket played, um, and not so much so at the junior level. Um, it was more senior level. You would only see it in the summer months, basically. Uh, the same local parks that we used um, to play our informal football, obviously, were the same parks that they used to play cricket. So, so was the there a gap? Night. Sorry, was there a gap that you didn't play the game when you moved to England? I mean, or did you? Uh, I mean, uh, how, how much time was there that you lost in cricket, like as a teenager? Yeah, there was a gap. I would say that it could well have been about a year. I, the school that I went to, secondary school, had very limited facilities for any sport, actually, but even more so cricket. I remember, you know, at that school, you would probably play, you know, one, two matches a year if you were lucky at cricket. So, obviously, there was a gap of about a year where football took total control. And it was only really through football that I actually got back into the football, got back into cricket. And, you know, our normal weekends, particularly um, Sunday mornings, where we used Saturday afternoons as well, but Sunday mornings, we would go down to the local park in our community, just a whole group of us, and we would play football for about three hours. That, that was the normal weekend. And then obviously go home and watch more football on the TV in the afternoon. But there was a particular Sunday where we had just completed our informal games and we were just wrapping up to go home when a group of guys came on the field and set up some stumps on the field. And one of the guys wandered over to our group as we were packing up and said, listen, guys, we, we're having a cricket game here. And we're a few players short. I mean, could any of you guys fill in for us? So the natural reaction for myself and all the others was, no, not really, because we've been here for three hours. We're tired. We're hungry. We want to go home. But one of my close friends, Graham Hopkins, and one of my neighbors, one of my neighbors, you know, we were very, very close. And obviously, you know, in our discussions before, we had chatted about cricket. And, coming from the West Indies, etc. And 
he said to me, you like cricket, why, why don't you play? So I was very reluctant. But in the end, he and the others persuaded me to play. And I, I ran home and got a white shirt and came back and played some cricket with them. Didn't do anything extraordinary. I think I probably got a dozen runs or so. Took a few catches. And in actual fact, the area that I lived was called Stevenage. And this was Stevenage third 11. So they were either very, very short of players or they saw something in me and said, look, would you like to play next week? So I guess having started that Sunday, maybe the taste came back and I, I agreed to play the following week. And it didn't take me long to get into the second level, very quickly gravitated into the second level. And by the time I was age 15, I was playing in the, in the first level. So it, it all happened very, very quickly. When, yes. when you bear in mind, you know, I went to England when I was, uh, you know, May 1967. I would not have been 14 until October. So basically that 67 season would have gone uh, without anything happening. So it would have been the following um, season, 68. So it was probably a year that I was out of the system. Well, and then, of course, uh, your biggest day in England was at the MCC uh, County uh, Club. Uh, where you played a lot of cricket, played close to 251 matches, scored more than 10,000, actually close to 11,000 runs. And then you also played uh, limited over cricket, played, I think, 200 plus games. And uh, county cricket in, in that era, all over the world, was considered the pinnacle of the four-day or the first-class sport. I mean, they, it would attract international players. And uh, even in India, I mean, we would read about the county scores through newspapers. So we knew besides test match, that's the next best level. So how hard was it to get into the Middlesex team? Talk about that experience. Yeah, obviously it was, it was quite hard, but I think the route, the route to Middlesex was you know, also something that you, you had to go through because while at Stevenage showing promise as a 15-year-old in the first team, I, I then played for... The, the area that I lived in, which was Hertfordshire. So I played for Hertfordshire schools and did pretty well. But, you know, I really had a stroke of luck where one of our players in the Stevenage First Eleven, a gentleman by the name of Cyril Hammond, he got a job actually at Gloucestershire County Cricket Club as the chief fundraiser and was moving from the area. So he, he moved to Gloucestershire. But unbeknown to me, when he got to Gloucestershire, he recommended me as a young player that he had seen that they should really investigate. And, you know, Gloucestershire, Stevenage to Gloucestershire is probably about a five-hour, it's about a five-hour drive between the two. So there is real distance. So he, he really initiated that, and Gloucestershire invited me down to Gloucester. So I actually went down to Gloucestershire in summer of 19, 
1968, summer 1969. And the process there was that the Gloucestershire youth team would play the entire summer. So players would come and stay the whole summer. So I would stay the whole summer with him, Cyril Hammond, and play for the Gloucestershire youth team. It was around that time where Gloucestershire had young players like Zahir Abbas and Sadiq Mohammed. Uh, Mike Proctor was there at the time as well. But, you know, I, I then played in a youth team that was captained by Jeff Howarth, who, was in New who came, became New Zealand captain. You know, he, he was their captain. People like David Graveney, who was, was chairman of set selectors for England for a long time, played for Gloucestershire as well. And then there were quite a number of other first-class players, Andy Stavold and others, as youngsters who eventually became first-class players. So that was the, the route for me for those two years. Then, but in 1969, at the end of 1969, really I was only 16 then, um, really Gloucestershire didn't feel it was... I was really old enough to come on the full-time professional staff. So at that time, MCC at Lords had a, a, a young professional internship program, apprenticeship program. So they sent me up to MCC for a trial for the MCC in 1969, end of 69. And obviously they liked what they saw. And I got a contract at MCC Young Professionals for 1970-71. And I, I was there at the same time along with um, Ian Botham and Ian Gould. And then a number of other first-class cricketers uh, were there with me as youngsters. So it was worth being on the MCC Young Professionals staff, which is based at Lords, that Middlesex got the opportunity to, to see me and obviously see all the players and they liked what they saw and offered me a contract to be a full-time professional. So I joined Middlesex along with Ian Gould and a number of others. And at the same time, we had the likes of Mike Gatton and John Embry and people like that came in at the very same time. So it was, it was a, a time when Middlesex were transitioning from um, the older players. When I got there, there was only a few of the older players left in the team, like Fred Titmus. And John Murray, John Price, but and Peter Parfit and Eric Russell, all those other famous Indian players were just being phased out. So I, I was coming into a new setup with young players. So it, it took it took me two years, 1972 to 1974. Made my debut in 1974. So it took me two years to get into the side, and then obviously after that I had to work very hard to establish myself within the team. But the time at Middlesex was very good because I was able to play with, you know, a very good captain who he himself, he'd only just really taken over uh, from the previous group. And, you know, he, I guess he was fortunate also to, to have so many um, good young players coming into the club at the same time. So the Middlesex experience was a great one. Yeah, let's talk about that, Captain. Uh, so what was your equation with Brearley uh, uh, over the years while you played under him? And then uh, uh, was he instrumental in you, know, in you developing as a player? So talk about that. I think he was very instrumental 
of me developing not just as a player but as I think as a person. I, he's somebody I'm very fond of. I, I think you know he was a very gentle man who you know really had time for everyone, time to sit down and discuss and advice. You know I, I found him a you know he could be a tough captain if he wanted to be, uh, but. You know, he, what he did was he, he made the young players feel very, very welcome and not just welcome, he, he made the young players get involved with the process of what was happening. You know, he was, you know, he was a person I remember, you know, the first few games that I would have played. And, you know, as a, as a fielder, you know, I, I think I was, a, I, was a, I was a very good fielder. And I think that was because, again, my my role model who was a good fielder. So quite often, you know, I would be fielding with really at slick or something like that. And, um, you know, and something that he would do with me and with all the young players is he, you know, he would say that, well, um, what do you feel? What do you feel should bowl at the nursery end when, when Daniel is finished? Or, or who should bowl from the pavilion end when Trey Titmus is finished his spell? You know, and really, you know, what he was doing was getting you involved with the game, but he, he was really keeping you interested because you're a young player and here is a captain on the side asking you as a young player, what do you feel about a situation? So what it did to me and all the other young players, it made us very, very alert that at any time during the game, he could call upon us with a question and we didn't want to be caught out with no answers. So basically, you know, you would tell him what you thought and at times, you know, he would agree. Yeah, he said, yeah, I agree that, that, that that's a good move. Or, or he would say, look, no, I, I don't think so. I, I think so-and-so. I think, I think Embry should follow Edmonds or something like that. So he, what he really did was, with all the young players, he kept them very much on their toes during the game because if a player was caught out once and didn't have an answer, that player made sure it didn't happen again. So over the years... You know, we developed a very, very close relationship. Um, we traveled together at times, had long, in-depth conversations. And what that did for me was to allow me to become uh, more vocal, I think, within the team environment, particularly at team meetings. So I was able to make contributions within team meetings that was very relevant. And I think he, he, he liked that as well and encouraged me further to do that. So we develop a great friendship and even to this day, you know, we're still very, very good friends. Yeah, and, uh, it was said of him by someone that he has a degree in people. And, you know, I've been reading a lot about him because I just spoke with him so in preparation. Uh, and it, it, it makes me wonder, I mean, since you played with him, for him for so long, a lot of uh, younger fans of today's game uh, respect him and you know because he's a storybook captain you you know he's mentioned everywhere but a lot of people have this argument that you know in today's game the game has specialized modernized so much uh, someone cannot be in the team just for captainship nuances I'm not saying it's a majority view but a lot of people may feel that but uh, reading uh, his book Art of Captaincy I mean it just tells you like how much there is to captain it's man management it's about leadership skills like you talked about, like how he got the youngsters involved in so many levels. Not, was, not only was he visionary, he was sensitive to the needs of his players. 
So do you see the game has changed that much that Mike Rarely would not walk into many 11s today? Well, I, I, think, I think there would be still room for Mike Rarely because, you know, he was not a bad cricketer. Uh, you know, obviously he came back into the test side, you know, later, later on in his life. But, you know, if you follow his career as a, as a young up-and-coming cricketer and a first-class cricketer, you know, you would find that, you know, at times, you know, he, he was quite a prolific batsman, you know. If you check his records, you will find that against South Africa, in South Africa, uh, for an England side, Mike Brady scored 312. So, you know, so a lot of people just remember him purely for his captaincy, but, you know, you know he was not the worst player. You know, he was a very dogged player who really didn't like to play a lot of shots. But, you know, he, you know, he, was, he, he was a good batsman. So I think these days, you know, maybe obviously the, the one-day game, obviously he wouldn't be, he wouldn't figure in the one-day game now. Back then he played, obviously, in the, the ODI um, competition. But he, obviously these days, T20, which calls for a different type of player, a uh, player who really has the ability to hit sixes at a regular uh, regular basis. You know, perhaps he, he wouldn't fit into the T20 more this year, this time. But uh, certainly as a, a, you know, a test cricketer with that sort of skill as a, as a captain and the ability to bat, I think, yeah, there would be room for somebody like that this, these days. No, that, that's definitely good to hear because uh, a lot of times, like you said, uh, he was a, a good batsman, but his captaincy, uh, you know, bravado's kind of overshadow his legend of, you know, and that's what he's known to uh, most folks who haven't watched him play. So yeah, let's switch over to Mike Gadding, the other captain you played under. So how were the captaincy styles different between Brearley and Gadding? And Gadding, of course, came under the leadership of Brearley. So talk about that. Yes, again, very different. Um, styles, you know, you know, Gatting grew up with me. Uh, we, you know, we came to the club at the same time, played through the second 11 on the 25s together into the first team. And again, you know, the, you know, the genius of really was that when, you know, when he was about to, to finish, Again, he, you know, he, he, canvassed, he canvassed us individually as to, you know, who we feel should be the next captain of Middlesex. You know, so he spoke to every player to get their thoughts. He didn't just recommend um, Mike Gatting or whatever. He, he canvassed all the players individually, asked them, you know, who you thought would, should be the best person to carry on what we started here, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously then it came down to, to Mike Gatting. As I said, two different type of characters. Obviously Mike really was much more reserved. Um, Mike Gatting is very much a, a person who likes to lead from the front. You know, he has to be out front. You know, he, he's an Ian Botham type figure. You know, he wants to lead from the front. He can be quite blunt, but one thing you about him is, you know, totally committed to the cause. There's no question about that. 
Well, obviously, he, you know, he was brought up in a, a team and in an era where, you know, the team was extremely successful under Mike Brady. And he had the same players. So really, he didn't have to change much. He just had to really be his own person and allow the team to evolve as it had evolved over the years. So, you know, he provided a different type of leadership, you know, as a, you know, as someone who really wanted to be up front, you know, at times we would say to him to get, you know, he was like a bull in the China shop, you know, he's rushing through, but, you know, his heart and commitment was, was always there. And, and obviously, you know, he became very successful as well and went on to captain England and, and, and captain them well. Yes, indeed he did. So let, before we talk about your brief uh, stint with the English team, uh, on the same timeline, West Indies team was becoming this historic sites. Was there any amount, uh, any ounce of regret for you that had you stayed back, you could have played with those guys because some of the guys were same age as you, like Desmond Haynes, came from the same town. So what are your recollections of that time? Did you ever second guess your move to England? Um, not really. I mean, I had no choice, really. You know, my parents were in England from the 50s and had tried several times to get me to come to the UK. Um, my grandmother obviously brought me up and she was not happy for me to be going to the UK previously, you know, but obviously in 67, she relented. So I had no choice. I, I was going to the, to her family. Uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. Thinking back, you know, the era that I lived in Barbados, perhaps it might have been very, very difficult for me to have got to the to the top because the, the, the local team we had where we where we lived were very much a, a, a community team really. There was not a it wasn't one of the mainstream teams. So you know more the mainstream teams with the history were near the capital, the likes of Empire and Spartan Wonders very famous clubs in Barbados who produce all of these top players. I mean, the likes of Spartan produced Sir Clyde Walcott, Empire produced Sir Frank Worrell, Sir Everton Weeks, Sir Charles Griffith. So those were the clubs that had the prestige and, you know, and, but, and they were so far away from where I was that Really, the chances of me really getting into that company, I think, would be very slim. I would really have to be really outstanding for somebody to take you out of that environment. So I, I have no regrets. I, I think once I went to England, it was very, very obvious that that was going to be my home for some time. And as time went by and, you know, I had married, I got married and got kids and et cetera. I mean, England was, England was my home. So it didn't, re it was never a question then of ever trying to play for the West Indies because, you know, I was living in England and, and I was a, an English based player. So a player for the West Indies would have changed that status at that time. My status would have changed to an overseas player. Uh, which is much harder, you know, to play because as an overseas player, they, they weren't within the whole 
set up at that time, each counties were allowed to have two overseas players. So there were a maximum of 36 overseas players playing in England from every corner of the world. So if you wanted to put yourself in that situation amongst all of these great players to get a job, it made no sense whatsoever. So it was very simple. If I remained an English player, even if I didn't have a career at Middlesex, you've got another 17 first-class counties that I could have had the opportunity to play as. So I have no regrets at all. Yep. And uh, do you believe it was destiny that the only three tests you ended up playing for England were all against the West Indies? And uh, what do you remember of that series and your return back to the West Indies? Yeah, that was ironic that it actually worked out like that. And ironic also that I played my first test here in Barbados. And again, you said the word destiny. It probably was destiny because if all things were equal, my first test would have been in Guyana and not in Barbados if things didn't work out a certain way. Uh, because, you know, I played my first test, as I said, in Barbados, but that was the third test of the series because first test was in Trinidad's Second test was in Guyana. I was due to play my debut in Guyana, but that was the Robin Jackman affair where Robin Jackman was asked to leave the country because of his association with South Africa before. And the, the English government and the English cricket board decided that if Jackman had to leave, the entire team would leave. So. That the test match was cancelled on the eve. And the next test was in Barbados. So we came to Barbados and I was fortunate to, to then make my debut here in Barbados. So you can say that is destiny. Who, who, you know, who could have written that script? It was yeah, also, yeah, it's like a movie, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was also a further twist to that in that. Why playing your first test match here was something that you really cherished and look forward to. You know, on the second day of the test match, our assistant manager, Ken Barrington, had a heart attack and died. So, you know, that, that soured the, the occasion somewhat because here was one of your backroom staff. Um, so it was something that none of us had ever experienced ever. Uh, somebody who's very close to you, just, you know, you, at night, that night you're fine, and then the next morning that person is gone. Again, you could say, was that destiny? Who knows? So it was, it was, it was, it was tough. And then after that, really, you know, it was a mental thing to try and survive. Really, the next Test match in Antigua and, and Jamaica, and as luck, not luck, as life, had it really, I, I didn't play after that, but. You know, I, I have no regrets. I mean, I would have liked to have played more, but it is what it is. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I carried on with my career. Sure. So let's switch on to race and cricket, which is a pretty complex issue. But uh, that's been, you know, on the surface of the last few months due to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. You've spoken to quite a few forums. You know, all we have to do is Google. A lot of people have spoken about it. So when you walk through that door, being the first black man to play for England, and of course you had played at MCC, uh, was race always the elephant in the room? I mean, how was your experience throughout 
till you made that debut and how you look back at the journey from a racial lens? I think for me, you know, I, I didn't really experience some of the situations that other players would have experienced racially throughout their career. I very much, I was very much was a, of an individual myself. I, I was not a big uh, group follower. I mean, and, and I, I, I did very simple things. I was not a person who liked lots of parties and, you know, bars and that type of thing. So, I mean, I, I, I was a person that didn't really get into situations where, you know, people had the opportunity to, you know, say a negative, negative things to you or against you. So, you know, basically I would travel to, to, to the match or the lords or whatever, train, practice. Uh, when that is finished, you know, return home to my family. That was my, my way of, of doing things. So in many ways, you know, I, 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 did, I was really sheltered uh, from it. I know a lot of players, some players, black players, um, had situations where, you know, people threw bananas at them and said all sorts of things. But I can honestly say that that didn't really happen with me at all. I, I, you know, you might have heard, you know, an odd comment. I'm not saying that there were not people who perhaps had a, a certain feeling about things or, or not, but I'm just saying that they weren't said to me. But it, it is, uh, you know, it, it was around then, it's around now, uh, and it was around even before that. So I'm glad now really that at least it's now being confronted a bit more for this time and um, hope that, you know, people can keep working at it and, and try and level the playing field because I, I think that very much is all people are asking for is to have a, a level playing field where, you know, you are considered on the ability that you possess uh, and not the color of your skin or religion. Absolutely. And, uh, before we wrap up, let's uh, take a brief m moment for the Rebel Tours. Uh, so I know you pulled out later on. So how do you look back at that whole event? Yes, again, um, was that divine intervention? Who knows? But what I would say, at the time when I had agreed to, to go, I guess it was very much you know, you, you, you only, you didn't really know that the real stories in South Africa because, you know, you, you had very little contact with South Africans, you know, you just what you would see on the TV. So you, you didn't really have that interaction with, with South Africans to understand, you know, fully what was going on, whether they were black or white South Africans, you, you, you never had that interaction. When it came about, it was towards the end of my career. You were supposed to go, I think it was 1989. And I was very much at the end of my career because I, I retired at the end of the following year, which was 1990. So at the time, you know, it, it seemed to me that here was an opportunity to play in South Africa. The way it was given to us was that 
you know, we would be helping the situation there, not, not hindering the situation. And obviously, as I said, it was the end of my career, so here was one last opportunity. I mean, previously to that, you know, I did have the opportunity in the early days of my playing career to play in South Africa. And that was when Vincent van der Boyle, the South African, played for Middlesex in 1980. And he was desperate for me to go and play in South Africa uh, for Wanderers. And I guess at the time, I, I really was maybe afraid because Wanderers in those days never, ever had a black player ever played for them. So, and as you know, Wanderers is a very, very big club in South Africa. So I declined that offer then, and here was an opportunity for me to, you know, have one last opportunity. So I, initially I said yes, I, I, I would go and sign the contract, etc. But as time developed, the different type of people that sport with you, I mean, white South Africans sport with me to persuade me not to go, black South Africans, the ANC, the clergy, friends, teammates, um, all sorts of people really spoke to me uh, about not going, etc., and family, etc. And in the end, I decided yes. I mean, I guess for those reasons, I, I, I shouldn't go, and I made the decision then to, to pull out of the tour. Okay, so I think uh, that should sum it up. Uh, everything I wanted to cover, we have here. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's a Sunday morning. You have uh, to enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, and once again, it was a pleasure speaking to you about your time uh, in England, MCC, and the West Indies. Zaki, great pleasure. And um, if I can be any further assistance, I'm always here and um, always willing to do that. <laughs>